What do you do when doubt creeps in? I go for a run. <laughs> Does um, that always help? I, changing the chemistry through exercise helps me phenomenally. And I talk about it with the team a lot when we're stuck on something, like get up and do jumping jacks. Like getting up and moving is super important to kind of like working through things. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, you're about to meet Tyler Haney. She is the founder and CEO of the activewear company Outdoor Voices. And I first discovered it on Instagram. Maybe you've seen that doing things hashtag. That's Outdoor Voices. And in a relatively short span of time, the brand has now managed to stand out and claim its spot among industry giants like Nike and Lululemon. Plus, it caught the eye of some big name retailers like J. Crew in the process. Here's Tyler to tell you her story. Tyler Haney, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you with us. I've been following you and admiring you from afar for some time now. Um, I think the first story I read about you was that from the get-go, you thought, I'm taking on Nike and Lululemon. I can do this. (laughs) I actually looked back at my first pitch deck recently, and the first page says, I'm building the next great activewear brand. So ambitious, and people certainly thought it was foolish early on, but here we are. We're making it happen. Where did that ambition come from? You grew up in Boulder? Yes, grew up in Boulder, super outdoorsy town. Um, I have a mom and her twin, so basically two moms that kind of have this go get them attitude um, and have kind of taught me to always have this kind of unbounded enthusiasm for what you do um, and to think really big. So we called it reaching for the tree stars. um, And it's been kind of instilled in me since a tiny little girl. That is so cool. Your parents were also designers, yes? Yes. Did you think at that time I could see myself doing this someday? Never. I I never thought I'd be in apparel, um, but have always loved building things, creating things. Um, So it makes sense. What was your dream when you were a little kid? I wanted to go to the Olympics. Uh, I played every sport imaginable, ran hurdles, uh, played basketball, rode horses, and was like, I'm going to the Olympics for something. I mean, I was an ultimate tom, the ultimate tomboy. Um, so I played every sport imaginable. I had a bowl cut. I might, I might bring that look back. I was kind of into it. Um, but I, I've always wanted to own a sports team. Um, I'm obsessed with sports. The Jayhawks are, are my team from uh, Kent, Lawrence, Kansas. I love the Jayhawks basketball. But I, I'd love to. Uh, my parents went there to okay. KU. Okay. <laughs> um, but I love college. I love college basketball. I love baseball. The Mets are my team here. I'd love to own um, a sports team one day. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you play baseball? No. <laughs> Did you ever play baseball? I played softball. Um, and I played t-ball. But I wasn't good. But it's fun. (laughs) I played baseball growing up when I was really little, and I loved baseball. I loved playing baseball, and I used to go to baseball games all the time with my dad and my grandfather. I love it. Watching it on TV is not not great, but um, in real life, it's great. I liked it for the ice cream sundae that I got. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I was mostly about the food. Was there a point along the way where you decided, actually, no, I'm not going to the Olympics? We've had a few Olympians here on the Uh show, and you really have to dedicate your whole life to that. Totally. Um, Yeah, I I 
was most serious about horseback riding. So um, had actually been the groom for the U.S. team at the World Cup in Germany. Um, and it was beautiful and awesome and, and would have maybe pursued that path, but it almost felt a little bit one-dimensional to me. I wanted kind of more variety. So, yeah, I, I would imagine that takes a lot of, like, singular focus and, and um, dedicated time. So and when I was 18, I think I decided I'm going to go to New York and try something different. And you went to Parsons mm-hmm. at this point. Yes. So had hey, you been to New York when you decided to come to the city for school? I hadn't. Um, I took a year off after high school. Um, kind of that was the moment that I was like, I'm not going to pursue either hurdles or horses more seriously. Uh, but I had always been drawn to the energy of New York. And so um, my family is mostly on the West Coast. And they were like, are you crazy going to the East Coast? Uh, but made it happen um, and worked in restaurants, actually, for my first year off here before going to Parsons. And why did your parents think it was crazy to come to New York? I think, I mean, our family is very West Coasty, you know, so everyone <laughs> lives in, in uh, the mountains or California, and we just haven't grown up uh, spending much time on the East Coast. So they're like, that feels far, you're nuts, but um, it definitely was the right spot for me. Okay, so you're waiting tables. Is is the idea coming into shape at all at this point for Outdoor Voices? Not ahead of school. No, not at all. Um, I found the most valuable thing about being at Parsons was I took a, um, a course called design and management. So it was actually a business degree, but we got proper training in accounting and kind of finances. And, um, uh, on the flip side, got to learn about Adobe suites. So like Adobe illustrator and Photoshop, which was a really nice combo because once you left school, you were able to visualize your ideas, like putting pitch decks together, et cetera. But I don't remember, um, there being much like jockeying in terms of business ideas in school. Uh, it was really like an environment to, to really learn. Once I left school, it was actually uh, one run on the West Side Highway that the, the idea sparked for Ovi. Because um, I had grown up wearing lots of Nike, loved Nike. It made you feel like faster, you know, than, than kind of superhuman powers, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, but when I was in school, I think it was my senior year, I was running like 1.2 miles on the West Side Highway at a very recreational pace. And I looked down and I was like, there feels like some real dissonance here in terms of kind of the Olympic athlete uniform. Um, but me going at like a 10 minute mile per pace. So I said, I want to create an outfit for activity that's comfortable to sweat in, but a little bit more aligned with kind of the aesthetic and like chillness of recreation of, of the exercise I was doing at that point in my life. What year was this? This was 2013. 2013 is the year you launched the company. Yeah, I think uh, the website launched 2014, but 2013 was like I was all in thinking about this. And you self-funded it, friends and family money in the early stages. Mm -hmm. So you have the skill set from school. You have the idea. What's your first step? Um, It was all making product. I had no idea how to make clothing. So um, spent a lot of time in Midtown and a lot of time on Google figuring out pattern makers and um, the material that I wanted to use. And like, there were definitely crop tops that like had one, you know, only one arm armhole at, at the <laughs> beginning. So um, I, I were you sewing them in your apartment or like, how is this happening? I had a bunk bed, I took the first shelf of the bunk bed out and I kept my rolls of fabric underneath. Um, and I would do mock ups just so that I would have something to bring to the pattern makers and be like, hey, this is kind of the cut that I want. Um, but ultimately worked with pattern makers in, in Midtown to make the first samples. Your product is highly specific around, you know, where there's compression, where mm-hmm. there's breathability, all of that. Did you have that sort of fully formed idea back then? 
Um, I've always wanted to make product that's meant to sweat in. So I wasn't interested in and in, in not interested in making fashion. It's it's truly product for the activity. So I was very clear on that. Um, and yeah, we would we would by trial and error, like put on different materials, go sweat in it and see if it worked or not. Right. Go for another run on the West Side Highway. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how many iterations did it take before you got to the pair and Take me, take us to that moment where you realize this is it. This is the one that's going to work. Yeah, I mean the compression piece is is hard. So um, figuring out kind of where on your body like there needs to be the different kind of compression was difficult. I would say the material development was the 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 most time consuming part of it. Um, so working with the mill to get kind of the ingredients and the yarns right so that they are really um, most comfortable for sweating and. Um, but I had my crop top, my two-tone legging, um, and I felt like I could do anything. And it's actually cool to, to see customer feedback with that same product now. Um, people feel strong in this, in, in this combo. Um, they feel like they can take on anything. How did you do that when, when you were originally looking for the right partnerships? I mean, you talk about the mill, you talk about the pattern makers. Those people can make or break mm-hmm. the company. How did you find the right people? I mean... Uh, you meet all of them and and work with all of them. Um, so it was definitely not the first people that that uh, we still work with today. Um, but yeah, I was think it through by, Google that you, you were just on, googling Yelp reviewing on. people early on? Absolutely, and then you start to ask vendors who they work with and and um, kind of deduce from there. Uh, like once we found the material. Uh, the right material source, we'd ask them, who are the best manufacturers in the world, et cetera. And so kind of link together, uh, connect the dots from vendors. Uh, but it's a process. I've talked to other founders about this. It can be complicated in the early days when you're seeking out the best, but the best don't want to work with small vendors. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So you have to convince them. Uh-huh. Um yeah, absolutely. We were lucky early on. J. Crew placed uh, a pretty sizable order, eleven thousand units, which I remember being like, "Holy, how are we going to make that happen?" Like, uh, and that—that's actually what I had to raise the initial money for was to produce it. Um, but these little tiny wins start to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and that traction is real. So um, it's just part of it. I mean, I. I wouldn't want to go back to that time. I don't know if I would. I would uh, be able to do it again. It's but. You know nothing else in the in the moment, you know, because it's constant anxiety and you don't sleep and everything is about the business. Yeah, it's just it's hard. It's hard work, but it's awesome. And and actually, I've been thinking about that a lot recently is like, how do you um, be very present and like enjoy the moment because you get caught up in it, you know, and, and it's just a, an awareness. Um, but I've been, yeah, fast, fast forward to now, like very conscious of enjoying every day. I've gone through this in my career, too. In the early days when you have a win, it's hard to even take the time to enjoy it because you think, I have to use this to build the next thing. Totally. You can't actually take that moment to say, wait a minute, this is a really big deal. And let's like cheers each other on this one. And and that drive is like what ultimately makes founders start things, you know, and, yeah. and, and make really awesome companies that have great impact. Um, but... It is important to, I think, just from a happiness perspective, like find that presence and, and enjoy the wins or, or the losses or the failures. I, I think the f- like you want to fail. You want to learn to fail. Um, and it's something that I talk to the team a lot about is like 
expect change and embrace discomfort and like learn to fail, you know? So what's um, the right way to fail? I mean, fail fast, fail fast. And then um, I would say some one of my advisors told me this, but um, just don't don't fail at something the same thing twice, you know, so like the time that you repeat that same mistake is is when you're doing it wrong. But but fail fast and and fail um, often. Otherwise, you're not you're not pushing yourself. Not you're not trying big things. Everybody says to fail fast, and I hear that, and I think, okay, so how does one fail quickly? Mm-hmm. Can you take us inside of something and tell us, like, how does that work? How do you fail quickly? I think it's about setting a framework for experimentation, right? So, um, I would say, like, even even from we're in a digital business, so it's all data, like data led. You can measure everything, so. Being able to measure uh, is, is super critical in, in, a, in an age where you have data and, and can see results like um, almost in real time, like allows you to try things that, that you might expect to fail, like a new product, for instance. So um, or or going to a specific uh, market. We opened Aspen. Um, uh, it was our sixth store last year. And a lot of people were like, that seems crazy. It's such a resort town. But um We've been able to, from the data, see that it's a very valuable uh, market for us outside of Aspen. When people go go back to their homes um, where they don't, you know, they're not on on a trip, like they're a very, very valuable customer. That said, Upper East Side, um, we did a pop-up up there and quickly realized that that was not our demo quite yet. Um, and so shut that down very quickly. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay, so you've got the company. You've got J. Crew interested. How did you get J. Crew interested in the first place? Stay tuned for more No Limits after a quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring. Where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions. Then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. Okay, so you've got the company, you've got J. Crew interested. How did you get J. Crew interested in the first place? They found us, um, which was lucky. Wow, this, this woman named Tracy uh, has, you know, she she's like the discoverer, um, and she found us. Uh, and thankful to be in New York, I guess at at the time because we got on a lot of people's radars quickly and, and happened to get on hers. But they found us. How soon was it that you went out and sought outside funding? Um, pretty immediately. I mean. Uh, one, one recommendation is not to get into a business with inventory, but I'm in, in a business with inventory. And so it's, it's costly. Um, and so you, it's a very capital intensive, uh, thing to be in the apparel business. So I had, I had to find funding quickly. What did you experience when you were approaching the venture capital community? Yeah. Um, the list was predominantly male, um, which I think 
we have a really awesome uh, female um, investor called Kirsten Green, and I think the landscape's changed a bit now. There's a lot more females out there. Um, that would have been helpful because bringing female product or women's product to, to guys, they're like, what? We already have Nike and Under Armour. Why would we need this? And so I've talked about this before, but I ended up um, getting a lot of no's, which was helpful because I, I took that feedback and, and folded it into my pitch deck and it definitely got better because of those no's. Um, but then I started sending product to the wives of these uh, investors and that's really where I started to unlock uh, not just no's, but yeses. Yeah, I've heard that from so many women here. Mm-hmm. People have mentioned doing what you did or sending them to the other women in the office. Sometimes yep. it was the assistants. Sometimes it was more junior employees mm-hmm. and getting them excited about the brand mm-hmm. before. And Kirsten Green is fantastic. She's amazing. Okay, so you have the company, you have the financing, you have J. Crew. All of these things are going well. Mm-hmm. What is your first, oh my gosh, what are we going to do moment? Huh, um... I mean that getting the the eleven thousand units produced was tough. Um, How did you do it? Uh, I spent about three months in LA, uh, in South El Monte, California, like making sure that every single piece was perfect. Um, so I lived in the factory. Uh, so that was a bright and shiny uh, <laughs> moment from from history. Um, then getting the website up and running was also. Uh, difficult, but um, knew that in kind of this this time, being a digital first company would be our biggest leg up in terms of the, the legacy brands had, had grown initially from wholesale, um, and then Lululemon uh, relied on retail early on to, to really start to distribute, and for us, it was um, being born online. Um, so learning, learning how to do that and bringing experts in um, around building a, an online place to sell things was the next step. Have you felt pressure along the way from those old stalwarts of the business, the Nikes, the Under Armors, the Lululemons of the world? I'm thankful for them. They've paved the way for me to be able to do this. And um, I used to be like, I want to build the next Nike, but I I don't want to do that anymore. I want to build the next OV. I like that. What was the turning point? What made you decide that? What changed your thinking? That's a good question. Um, Well, we recently moved the company to Austin, and um, it's been really cool because it's given us like space to really look inwards and kind of craft the rules to our own game and our most valuable resource is our creativity so um the moment that that kind of clicked for me was moving to austin and understanding like we we've got the answers we don't have to look at others for for how to do this um and and the growth uh i guess is proof of that and and uh, we list, we have a, a feedback loop from the customer, and it's really cool to see just like the brand and the product and what we're building is is resonating in a big way. The the mission of doing things, um, and so being really connected to the customer uh, is how I know we're on course. What do you do when doubt creeps in? I go for a run. <laughs> Does um, that always help? I, changing the chemistry through exercise helps me phenomenally and I talk about it with the team a lot when we're stuck on something like we get up and do jumping jacks like really really uh kind of like a cathartic uh you know 
cathartic, being, getting up and moving is super important to kind of like working through things. So I, I very much believe in exercise and changing the chemistry. That's really smart. Somebody taught me when I was younger, when you can't think of a word, rather than just being silent and trying to think of it, you need to spit out as many words as you can, uh-huh, because once that. you're talking, it'll eventually get you to the word. Uh-huh. I love that. Sometimes works. I, I can't really do that here on the podcast, but <laughs> but in real life, yes. Okay, so you guys get up and do jumping jacks and go for a run when you're stuck. What do you wish you knew when you started? I wish that I knew. Hiring is the most challenging piece of this for um, me and I think for a lot of people. The the team's the most rewarding part, but it's, it's really hard to hire good people. So um, I, at this point, would say... You're not hiring for experience, you're hiring for mindset. And that's been something that that I've recently just learned. Um, Because when you're creating something that doesn't exist, like experience is valuable, but people need to leave that and ego at the door. Um, And so really being particular about people that are all in and understand for us, this is a startup and it's an uncertain kind of environment. Change is what to expect. Um, Hiring for mindset has has gotten us a lot further than people that come with a very experienced and like impressive resume. Yeah, I I have seen that in my own career and the value in that, and I hear that all the time from founders mm-hmm. because you definitely, especially when you have that venture money, yeah, you're going to get the creme de la creme of resumes sent your way. But if these are just people who are coming in for stock options yeah. in the hopes of someday being on the IPO train mm-hmm. and they've already they think they've paid their dues already and so they're just gonna clock in and clock out versus the true passionate believers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um it's super important and I think uh when you're in a high growth company, like you're hiring a lot of people, but the number one thing is to protect the team that you do have. And so we've been we've become really disciplined about that process. And we go slow, slow, slow through the hiring process um, to kind of and, the, and I'm the ultimate gatekeeper uh, of who I'm going to let do you interview the team. everybody. Uh-huh. Do you have a go to question that you use to discern whether they're really in it or they're just like a resume builder? Yeah, I've been talking about this one. It's actually kind of funny. Um, I say, OK, 60 seconds. Name as many pastas as you can. And it's actually it's <laughs> like the most weird question. But you, the reaction is, is are people can can they run with it? Like pappardelle, fettuccine, you know, and and it's the reaction that I'm really looking for with that question. Has anybody ever named Zoodles? No, that's a new one. I mean, what about like spaghetti, squash? <laughs> spaghetti squash? Zucchini noodles. <laughs> I love it. That's great. <laughs> Can I work for you? Yeah, creative. <laughs> Hired. <laughs> um, that's awesome. When somebody isn't fitting in or it's not working out, how do you handle that? Um, act quickly because it's not good for either party, you know, um, and it's not one-sided at all. Uh yeah, you want people to be happy and, and set up for success. So we, we move quickly on, on people that aren't the right fit. What's been the toughest lesson along the way? I think what the what what is the right growth? Because there's a lot of pressure to grow fast, but um, ultimately healthy growth is most important. Like uh, I think there's a lot of people that set out to build businesses just to flip them. Um, and for, for me, it's super important we're building a su- sustainable business that's going to be here for the long run. Um, and so figuring out the question to what is or the answer to what is the right growth has been the most challenging, challenging thing. And how do you figure it out? 
I, I mean, I think there's a lot of companies recently, or actually I, I've been thinking about this a lot, um, like how many companies that have just like sprung up recently and, and rocket shipped in the last four years do you still have like a real love and affection for? Um, and I can't think of that many. So uh, while it's tempting to go pedal to the metal and like and, and really uh, capture that growth, I've, I've been really conscious about tempering it and making sure that from a business perspective, the, the core economics are in place for us to, to be able to set this up to be a long-term company. Um, and I don't know what the right answer is yet, but, but I do think I encourage people not to, not to only think about growth and lean into growth for growth's sake. Well, and in, in that context, how much of that surfaces around marketing and branding versus a focus on a product that mm-hmm. is truly what it should be. Sure. Um, it's all about product. And and I actually spent some time um, with the Tesla team, Tesla and SpaceX team, which was really cool. And uh, they don't have a marketing department. Uh, and they believe that if we make like the best possible product, we don't need marketing. Um, and, and that's definitely been inspiring to me as well. Like uh, word of mouth and organic has has. Uh, been a big part of how we've grown OV. Um, and so a commitment and reinvestment of your resources into making world-class product, um, I think is the right recipe for success. What is the worst advice you've received along the way? Um, I think pe- people need to be careful of listening to too many people, you know? So, uh, there's a lot of noise and people are always like, ask this person for advice or ask more people for advice. But, um, Ultimately, I think that's dangerous. I think like making decisions by consensus is dangerous. And so um, really being selective about who you kind of have in your brain trust is, is super critical and um, tuning out kind of a lot of the noise. But I do think a lot of people say like ask or find more mentors or ask people for advice. But I, I, I think that sometimes can be, um, you know, uh, not productive. How did you realize that that was bad advice? I started to realize that notice, like I wasn't, I wasn't um, making clear decisions, and it was becoming a little bit like decision by committee, and that that's the most dangerous thing for um, someone running a company, a CEO in a CEO position. So you realized this after? Uh just like that. You know, we make so many decisions a day, and I just, I just remember like being exhausted by it and being exhausted by collecting like so many people's thoughts and I realized like hey look inwards you have the answers like you've got to kind of dial down kind of all of these suggestions and and really like come up with the solution yourself. How do you balance that with also creating a culture internally where people feel valued and their opinions count? Um, I mean for us the culture is very open and and curious and totally possible. So we are encouraging kind of questioning and, and, uh, and lots of conversation, but ultimately clear uh, accountability, like who own, owns what and responsibility is, is super critical. Um, and that's been something I've, I've had to learn uh, uh, because I, I am quite casual, but I, I have a coach um, that helps me kind of understand how to be a better leader and, and like clear accountability is critical for that type of thing. So not being like, oh, it's all good that you missed your numbers or that this yeah. happened. 
You need is that so, something you would have done uh, I mean, early on? Early on, just like a little more casual, but as like to grow an organization, accountability is critical. So you have to have a throat to choke and, and not in a negative way, but that's that's how we all stay accountable. So if you could go backwards and see all of this as little Tyler riding horses mm-hmm. in Boulder, Colorado, mm-hmm. what would she think of all of this? Um, I mean, it's... I recently was on Instagram and saw this little word. I'm not I'm not really into quotes, but it trusts the timing of your life. And like I've been leaning into that and it, it feels like it allows you just to like walk a little bit lighter. But I, it's awesome. I mean, it's all it's all trusting the timing of your life. My mom, when I was little, told me TYB baby and, and it's try your best baby. And and I've always kind of had that as like a personal motto and approach every every kind of situation with this like try your best do you say tyb baby when you're running i say it in a lot of instances uh it's it's kind of this uplifting like optimistic um way to kind of like get back to it that just presence. keeps you going yeah tyler haney thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me Okay, it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Lauren McGoodwin. Lauren is the founder and CEO of Career Contessa, which is a website with loads of valuable resources for women searching for jobs. There's important information there for anyone who wants to have a successful career. So whether you're looking or you're just looking to progress... It's a great resource. And Lauren caught my attention because she solved a problem that she experienced herself. As she says, the lack of resources for women who didn't lack ambition, but did lack direction on how to move forward in their careers. So what she built is honestly so powerful. I've been using it. I've been recommending it. She is not paying us to say this. I just think it's a really phenomenal resource. I talked about it on Good Morning America not long ago. Here's Lauren to tell you more. Hi everyone, my name is Lauren McGoodwin. I'm the founder and CEO of Career Contessa. We are a career site that helps women build successful careers. We launched in 2013 after I couldn't find a resource that spoke directly to women about careers and because I was working in recruiting at Hulu, so I was on the other side of the hiring table and learning all the things it took to be successful in your job. What started out as great career advice has expanded into so much more. We have curated job postings from companies we trust, career coaching, online learning, and even the Salary Project, an anonymous salary database. All this to say is that we are here to help you, and that's why we're not just a job site, we're a career site. Congratulations, Lauren, and thank you. Because of you, so many of us will be better off in our careers. Again, her website is careercontessa.com, and you can head over to my Instagram, at Rebecca Jarvis, to hear more from Lauren about how she got the company up and running and her advice. She has some really good advice, so check it out. Also, don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send those nominations and those career questions to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I love it when you write. I really appreciate it. I know how busy we are. It means the world. I also want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who have been leaving us reviews, like Maris30, who says, business inspiration.
inspiration and self-help are topics that are so hard to create content on while not coming across as ingratiating or insincere. This podcast is an easy and inspiring listen. I am so happy I downloaded it. Well, Maris 30, I'm really happy you downloaded it too. And I am very appreciative that you took the time to leave us a review. Sincerely. So thank you. Finally, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. My amazing producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Michelle Boncardo, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.